Matthew chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1. We read, At the time the disciples came, at that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck, and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For the tempta- woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains, mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Greatness defined by Jesus is what we have before us. Uh, Greatness, the quality of being great, distinguished, or eminent. The quality of being intensely above average, not just a little bit above average, but intensely above average, successful and commanding great respect, to be well-known, famous, celebrated, and maybe even exalted. Today there are shows on TV that showcase greatness for those who have talents. America has got talent, right? American Idol, The Voice, American Ninja even, if you, if you have the the ability to do that, that's amazing strength and agility and all of that, isn't it? Um, but all, even professional sports and movies in general, as these are all venues, ways in which greatness is exalted, it's celebrated. We see it firsthand, people who are truly above average, successful, famous, celebrated and exalted in all these different areas. But greatness can be achieved and lost quickly. Think about all of those shows and the talent that they have. I mean, in one fell swoop, it can all be taken away. This morning, we're taking a look at a greatness that is eternal. It's a greatness that is not defined by the world, but it's defined by the Lord Jesus Christ as He's asked that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He's asked that by his own disciples. So we should be interested in understanding how it is that Jesus defines greatness. We'll see this morning that greatness in the eyes of our Lord 
is not only who we are and what we do, but also who we are not in what we do not do, and what we deliberately and conscientiously withdraw from and avoid. All of those things are important in the eyes of the Lord as Jesus defines for us exactly what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Living in greatness before Jesus Christ is a life of being fully aware of circumstances and responding to situations with care and love for others and obedience to God and humility before people and with a great understanding of the value that God has placed on his people. I I think in the church sometimes we lose that. We sometimes start to reflect the very character and attitude of the world. And we think that we can talk to each other and treat each other with contempt. And it shouldn't be that way, especially not within the children of God. We should regard the value that God has placed in each and every one of us. If a disciple of Jesus Christ genuinely desires to be great in the eyes of the Lord, then you will, number one, as we read, and it will all be explained, number one, you need to choose to change. That is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and humble yourself. Number two, don't be the cause, that is, of sin in others or even yourself. And number three, understanding a value beyond cost is how valuable a child of God is to the Lord, beyond our cost. And it costs God everything. But enough value to where we see it exemplified, the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 on top of the mountain to go after the one that's gone astray. We need to always remember that when dealing with each other. And understanding what it is that honors and glorifies and praises the Lord with our very lives. That is what being great is in the eyes of the Lord. Now, let's first take a look at uh, choosing to change. Again, beginning in verse 1, it says, "At At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This um, happened shortly after the previous things had taken place. We went over that last week. Uh, We went over a faith, the declaration of Jesus the second time that he says that he will die but he will resurrect after three days. And we also took a look at um, Jesus addressing uh, how to handle taxes, right? We took a look at all of those things, and now we come to this section and this moment in time. And it didn't happen, but could have been within the hour after those other things happened, or it could have been shortly thereafter, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, and also Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, tells us that the disciples were arguing. So you have the account. This same account is found in the other two Gospels as well. But what they tell us are a few more details. gives us uh, the fact that these disciples were actually arguing with one another. They were going back and forth. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. 
I'm going to be the greatest. When Jesus establishes his kingdom here on earth. And so they were arguing. They were going back and forth about who was the greatest. Jesus asked them what they were discussing on the way. So he knew that they were arguing. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is leading the way. He's uh, taking his place with them. And he hears this discussion. Right? We'll just call it a discussion, but it was an argument. The Bible tells us it's an argument. They're going back and forth. He knows exactly what they're arguing about. Who's the greatest? That's interesting. The Bible says that the greatest will be the servant of all. That the last will be first, the first last. In God's economy, things are different. They're quite contrary to the way of the world. And they were arguing. And so Jesus, once they arrived at this house, asked the disciples what it was that they were discussing. And Mark tells us that initially the disciples kept silent. Now imagine for a moment, he asked, you know, what were you discussing? He knew what they, what they were discussing. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And he turned, what, what were you talking about back there? We, we really don't. It's like kids when they're caught, right? What were you guys talking about? I'm not saying anything. John, are you saying anything? James? Peter? (laughs) Nobody wanted to say anything, but they kept silent, silent for a while. Because they knew what they were arguing about. But Matthew tells us that that at some point they did indeed speak up. And someone asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Quite honestly, I think that's a great question to ask. It's a question that we should ask. Who's the greatest in the eyes of the Lord? What what is greatness before him? Because we we are always trying to prove who's great here on earth. In the sight of all men. Right? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I can prove I'm the greatest. No, I can prove I'm the greatest. You know, and it's a matter of argument, discussion, discussion. But I think this is a great question to ask the Lord, who is great in your kingdom? And how can I get on the list of greats before you? We know that sports have halls of fame where the players have broken records, sustained well above average performances over a period of time and have been hailed for their greatness. And now, being in a time of year where we are celebrating graduates also, right? We know schools have this thing called Principal's Honor Roll. That is a distinguished list and worthy of getting on. To have a GPA that it just excels. It's well above normal. We have these things. In other words, there are standards of greatness, there are. There's, a, there's an average, there's a basic standard, but to get above that, you're recognized, right? No one would argue with that. You, you, can, you can measure greatness in that manner. You're not great just because you want to identify as being great. There is a standard of greatness, and you either meet it or you do not meet it, Right? One way or the other. Jesus was about to define greatness in the kingdom of heaven. How is it done? Well, as I've been saying even last week, 
Christianity is a faith of surrender. Surrender. Choose to change is what he says here. To turn is to change. And it's a matter of choosing, exercising the will. Jesus decides to provide the disciples with his object lesson. He pulls in this little boy and he, and he stands him next to him. And he uses this child as an object lesson. Now, number one, he says, turn and become like a child. Turn and become like a child. We need to first understand what exactly Jesus means by this because I don't know if one child that is truly humble in the sense that he is selfless and others-oriented. Do you? Can you imagine your child saying, today I just want to do whatever makes you happy, mom and dad. I want to share my stuff with my brothers. In fact, take the door off my room. Whoever wants to come in and out, use my stuff and whatever. You know? If you want me to eat healthy, and I want to eat healthy. Pizza? Who wants pizza? Right? A happy meal because I want to make you happy. Uh, no. I, <laughs> that just doesn't come out of our kids. In fact, they know uh, very well how to be selfish, self-centered. It, it's all about me, myself, and I. Correct? Okay, so we need to understand what the Lord means by being like children. I mean, he has this child standing next to him. No, children are actually very much self-centered and need to learn how to consider others Love others as self and respect and bless parents. How to be honorable. So what is the Lord referring to here? Well, he's referring to dependence, trust, reliance. Acknowledging a helpless state before God and a complete dependence on the Lord for protection and provision and so much more. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. What he was speaking of is dependence, trusting in the Lord, relying on the Lord for all wisdom and for all direction. And it serves as a reminder that our understanding is limited. As we just read in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we're reminded our, our understanding is limited and it's actually flawed and should not be trusted above God's word. We are called to trust fully in the Lord. But please notice that Jesus first refers to becoming like turning away from prominence, seeking prominence before the world and simply surrendering and trusting as a child depends on parents, on the Lord, for the first thing is salvation. Salvation is a matter of choice. Read with me again. I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Quite clearly, he's speaking of salvation. This is first on the list. You want to know who's great? Hey, just enter heaven. Just surrender to the Lord. Completely rely on Jesus as your Savior, because you cannot save yourself. Because unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is itself 
a humble position taken before Jesus because a person is choosing to lower themselves and acknowledge that one cannot save oneself and needs to fully rely and depend on Jesus for salvation. Secondly, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of, he of heaven. It's present tense. It's today. Whoever chooses to change, that is, turn from self-dependence and depend instead and trust in the Lord to lead them in humble obedience is the greatest in the eyes of the Lord. How do we honor and glorify the Lord today? Obey Him. Live in obedience. Trust in Him. Stand on the truth. Don't compromise. Turn away from evil. That's how we glorify and that's how we are seen and viewed by the Lord. Jesus is defining greatness. And it begins by denying oneself, picking up our cross, and following Jesus Christ, as we covered back in chapter 16. And so Jesus is defining greatness, and it begins here, but it doesn't end there. Greatness is not just who we are and do, and what we do, but also who we are not and what we do not do. Let's continue on. Verse 5 says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We see now a transition. And in that transition, uh, we see it going into the area of Jesus discussing temptation and sin. He is referring not necessarily to children in the literal sense. Remember, the child next to him was an object lesson. So he's referring to the child, become like a child, and, and therefore enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, and if you become like a child, you will humble yourself and rely and depend on the Lord for all things. And therefore, in that place be honoring and great in the eyes of the Lord. But he's talking about his disciples. Not necessarily about children as far as age is concerned, but to those that look to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his people, and he calls them children. Not only does Jesus warn against causing a child of God to sin, but also the severity of allowing something to remain in your life that causes you to sin. We'll continue on with that. But Jesus addresses being the cause of sin for others, worldly temptations, and allowing the cause of sin to remain in one's life. That's what we see. And he warns against that. Number one, being the cause. And let's read 7 through 9, and then we'll go into this as far as being the cause. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Being the cause. I think Jesus made it abundantly clear that the punishment for causing someone else not just to sin once, 
Like, okay, this was done foolishly. I caused someone to sin. No, he's not referring just to that. But actually to take it a bit further and to be the cause of them completely turning away from the Lord. And he says, this, this is severe. A millstone. A millstone is this huge stone wheel that is attached to a horizontal bar connected to a donkey's harness. And as the donkey moves, this wheel turns on this great big slab of stone and crushes the grain beneath it. In this millstone, he's saying, it is better if someone were to have this millstone that weighs 300 pounds, 500 pounds, whatever it is, this huge millstone. They knew exactly what it looked like. They knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. It's better if this was wrapped around a person's neck and they were thrown into the deepest part of the ocean and were drowned. That's such a vivid picture, isn't it? His disciples would have, uh, no, no questions, Lord, this is really, this is serious. It leaves no room for someone to wonder what Jesus was talking about, right? Again, this is not just a one-time accident that will lead to damnation, but a life that is characterized by causing others to sin. A life that is incompatible with true, genuine discipleship. It's like, th- this should not be a part of a, of a child of God. This, this should not be a part of someone's life that considers themselves to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. It should not be. And so Jesus, as he continues, defines greatness that it's a life that is not the cause of others turning away from the Lord. It's not just, well, everyone's doing their own thing. No, you cannot be the cause of someone else turning away from the Lord. Do you lead a life that leads others away or to the Lord? That's a question that we should ask ourselves. Do you lead a life that leads others to the Lord? Regularly, by the way you live your life, the things you say, the the way you encourage, all of those things. Or is your life actually that one, that life that leads people away? Remember God's grace, remember God's mercy, though. As we ask these questions, know that um, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to remind you of that as we're asking these questions, because these are not questions of condemnation, but hopefully of conviction to where we turn from these things if we are found guilty of them. Because God's grace is truly wonderful. So these questions are worth asking. Ask the Lord to reveal, how am I encouraging others to the Lord? Or perhaps, how am I leading sometimes people away from the Lord? In the first part of chapter or verse 7, it says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. Woe refers to how great the suffering will be. But for the world that is against the Lord, isn't it expected that the world is opposed to, contrary to, 
is an enemy of the Lord. I wouldn't expect the world to act any differently. Temptation through and by the world is not surprising. Jesus said it is even necessary that temptations come. Have you prayed against temptations? You know, lead us not into temptation. I don't want to be led into temptation. But Jesus is saying right here, temptations are even necessary. Why do you think they're necessary? Temptations serve as a test. To test the genuineness of our faith. The person who professes a humble belief and dependence in Jesus Christ, well, it's tested. Temptations come. Are we truly relying, depending on, and trusting in the Lord? Or are we giving in to these temptations? Because how a person responds to temptations is telling of their faith in Jesus Christ. You may say one thing, but temptation comes and you succumb to it. Well, then that reveals and proves something else. And so we need to consider those things. So temptations are necessary. Even for the believer, that we would be proven genuine. The second part of verse 7 says, But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. There is a woe for the person through whom temptation comes. Woe again refers to uh, this great suffering. The tempter acts in line with the one that guides him. If we are... If we are ones that bring temptation to others, then we are behaving in a like manner with Satan. The tempter gets in the way of the one who is doing the will of the Lord and tempts him to go in a different direction. Even uh, Jesus, when Peter misspoke, he says, get behind me, Satan, right? Right? He says, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And when we are behaving in a manner that tempts people to draw away from the Lord and to fall into sin, then we are behaving in line with Satan and not with the Lord. If you desire to be great in the eyes of the Lord, do not be this person who tempts others to sin. Furthermore, and he continues on, do not allow yourself to be the cause of sin. Oh, we can be our worst enemies. Me, I am my worst enemy. And Jesus is saying, you, don't allow yourself to remain with temptations in your life that have continually been leading you down the path of sin. Don't do it. What is meant by that is explained by Jesus. If there is anything in your life that is the cause of your sin, then get rid of it. So many times we we cling to, to it because we just, we like it too much. We don't want to get rid of it. Of course, Jesus does not mean that we literally chop our hands off, take our feet off, poke an eye out. He's not saying, hey, I mean, we, we, we would all be coming in. Right? You know how we would look. If this was to be taken literally, and because feet would be flying, hands would be off. 
So, of course, he's not saying that we are to literally do these things. But it does speak of the seriousness of that which causes you to sin. He's saying, get rid of it. Be done with it. The cause of your sin is not worth keeping and being the cause of you going to hell. It just isn't. Being thrown into the eternal fire. To be the cause of being thrown into the hell of fire. What we are seeing here is that the person who is great in the kingdom of heaven is one who has a complete dependence on God, welcomes other believers in humility and service, as opposed to others, including professing believers who lead themselves and others into sin. This is who's great in the eyes of the Lord. Be, be cognizant, be aware, be fully sober about what's happening, about the truth of God's word. Make sure that you yourself are humble first and foremost before the Lord and you are dependent on him. You trust in him, not only for salvation, but to lead you in everyday life, to treat others with respect and honor and dignity, to not be the cause of sin in other people's lives and your own life. Don't allow that. Why would you allow that? Get rid of the things that cause you to sin, those temptations that lead you in that direction. Choose to change. Don't be the cause. And lastly, consider a value beyond cost. Verse 10, as we continue, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So this is telling us this morning, should be a reminder, hey, don't even come close to despising another believer. Not even close. This is not referring to someone who is lost, that is, an unbeliever, but someone who has chosen to turn their back on God. You can say a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. But I want, also want to take a moment, because I don't know if you noticed this or not, but did you look down and notice that we went from verse 10 to 12? You did? Okay. So not many people catch it because you just read through, right? Well, I want to address this omission really quickly. Uh, it is omitted because most of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts omit verse 11. Again, I refer you back to the earliest and most reliable manuscripts omit verse 11. And it's believed that it was most likely added by a later scribe to connect the parable more closely with chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And or also inspired by Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So that's what scholars have come up with. But the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have verse 11. We'll go on from there. From verses 10 and 14, 
I want to point you to those two verses because I believe it makes it very clear that Jesus is referring to believers that have turned away from him. This is the parable of the lost sheep and is exactly written as in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. But in that same chapter, chapter 15 of Luke, verse 7, it makes it clear that Jesus is referring to then a sinner who repents rather than a prodigal son. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But coming back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus refers to going after the one that has gone, not, not just lost, but has gone astray. It's different wording altogether. The point of the whole matter is that there is a value in each one of his sheep. That's what he's drawing our attention to. That is beyond what we can think or imagine. And he purchased each one with his own lifeblood on the cross. That's the whole point. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we miss it because we're arguing about it or we're discussing or we're looking at different um, things that add to it. But at the same time, we miss the point. It's in context saying, hey, listen, here's the value. Do not despise these little ones. Right? That's the point that Jesus is making here. He says, because they have value beyond what you can even think or imagine. Never despise, never detest, never hate, or devalue another brother or sister in Christ. Don't do it. Be careful. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Truly, hatred within the church should not exist. It, it, it shouldn't. That's why the Lord is very clear about restoring, re- reconciling. You know, all those things are important. Because what John is saying here, what Holy Scripture tells us, What the Bible speaks to is that hate blinds a person. And he's walking in darkness, not in light. Also, as we studied before in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says, 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders, murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So it's really important, right? Jesus is making it abundantly clear. If you hate your brother, you have murder in your heart, and it ought not be so. You need to repent of those things, that hatred, that anger, that bitterness. The question that he asks, Jesus, 
You know, what do you think if a man has one sheep that's gone astray? Will he not leave the 99 to go after the one? Just the one. This is a rhetorical question. Of course a shepherd would leave the 99 and go after the one. This speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ can do this perfectly. Yes, he leaves the 99 to go after the one, but does he really leave the 99? And the answer is no, he doesn't leave the 99. He never abandons us. Never leaves us. He's, he's with the 99 as he is with the one that he's going after. This speaks of the good shepherd. As pastors, we are under shepherds, and we should also reflect that same heart. And I praise God that he works with us and he helps us to be those people that are necessary to reflect who he is. But it's a rhetorical question. He's the good shepherd that wishes that none should perish, that all would come to repentance, not only for the lost, but also for those who have gone astray, those who have turned their backs on him. So this is saying two things. There are the 99 who are abiding in intimate relationship, in fellowship with the Lord, and are in consistent obedience to him and in him, and there is the one who has turned away from this. No intimate fellowship and is now disobedient. This is saying also one other thing. Look with me at verse 13. And if he finds it. If. If he finds it, is saying that there is a possibility that the one lost or that has gone astray will not be found. Now, is it that God can't find the one that's astray, been led astray? No, of course not, right? There's no place where we could go that God is not. There's, there's no, no place where we can hide from him. So it's not that he can't find us, but that rather we are not found in him and he in us. Because we have the freedom to choose, and it actually permits a person to hide from God by choosing to remain in sin and refusing to repent. We are hidden in our own sin. We remain in our own sin, prideful. God will never force a person to return to the fold against their will. Oh, he can lay out his love for you. He can remind you of his love. All that he's done. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he can tell you that he, he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That simply if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He can remind you of his grace, his mercy, his compassion, all of that. But if we harden our hearts toward the Lord, we can choose to remain in our sin and apart from him. Verse 14, very clearly, says that God does not wish that any should perish, but that they would repent. Not that they would remain unrepentant. The will of my Father who's in heaven, that the one of these, is that not one of these little ones should perish, right? Not one, not one. What Jesus is saying with all of this is that each one of his disciples are precious in his sight. 
through this whole section, verses 10 through 14. They're precious in His sight, and we are never to despise, never to detest, never to hate or devalue a brother or sister in Christ. And this is what is defined by Jesus as greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And so I think it's, it's a wonderful study as we go through these first few verses here in Matthew chapter 18. Next week we will understand how it is to deal with issues within the brethren. Right? But for now, the question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers this question very clearly. Number one, choose to change. Choose to turn from desiring to and pursuing being prominent and great in the eyes of the Lord and instead turn and choose to simply humble yourself before the Lord and depend on His grace and provision. Not only for life now, but life eternal, for salvation, for everything. Number two, don't be the cause of anyone's sin, including your own. If there is something in your life that serves as a temptation and leads you to sin, get rid of it. And I pray that even now as you're thinking about these things and what we're going over, if there's anything that is, has tempted you up to this point, you know what it is. Do away with it. Is it worth holding on to something that's causing you to sin? Not, not at all. It's not worth keeping you from the Lord. It's not worth you going to hell over it. It's not worth you falling into discipline with the Lord. If, you, if you're getting disciplined over and over for the same thing, that means you haven't gotten rid of whatever is tempting you. It, it's like the children in, in, of Israel in the wilderness, right? You go around and around and around. And around. You're going in the wilderness. You just keep going through the same things over and over and over again. Repent. Repent and get rid of those things that are causing you to sin. And lastly, consider the value beyond cost of each Christian and treat them as more valuable than yourself. Considering others well and treating them with love and respect and dignity. That honors the Lord. That honors the Lord. And that is what makes one great in the eyes of the Lord. I pray if you're here this morning and number one, Starting from the very beginning. You do not know. If someone were to ask you today. If you were to die today. Do you know for sure that you would be in heaven with the Lord? What would you say? I, I hope for most of us here. We, we've been coming here for some time. You know, that you would respond with. I know for beyond a shadow of a doubt. I am saved. God has forgiven me of all my sins. And, and today I will be with him in paradise if, if I were to take my last breath here. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I, I know that for sure. Why? Because I have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything I've done, but simply by his grace. But if you're here, and if you were asked that question, and you can honestly, and I hope you would be honest with yourself, you would say, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have not humbled myself before the Lord. I have not surrendered to Him for forgiveness, for salvation. 
I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That you would understand that as Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins. He died for the sins of the world, but he died for your sins specifically. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that you would today surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then from there, we start learning all this other stuff, right? You guys that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, you know that this stuff didn't just like, oh, you knew it overnight, right? There is a a process of sanctification that you're you're coming to understand God's word and you're applying it to your lives and, and it's a process. It's a process. But you start with salvation. Again, I, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know salvation in Jesus Christ today, you would simply cry out to him and ask him for forgiveness and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And from there, ask him, show me. Show me. As I read your word, show me who you are and how much you love me and how it is that I can glorify you. And as we read here, this is who's great. This is how it starts. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one that humbles himself before the Lord, removes himself from sin, and is not a tempter, but is an encourager of the brethren. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you first and foremost for the love that you have demonstrated to us and that while we were still sinners... Christ, your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us. I pray, Lord, that we would not only trust Jesus for our salvation, but also, Lord, to live an abundant life in peace, knowing that he provides all. Lord, not only salvation, but Lord, a peace as we know that we are uncompromising before you. And so, Father, help us. Pour your Spirit out upon us and help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you for loving us the way you do. And we thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.